This is Big Talk. Michael Glab here, my guest this week. In the studio, Rob Stone. Dr. Robert Stone, thank you so much. Glad to be here. Thank you. You describe yourself as a grandfather, a gardener, and a doctor. We all know you as a doctor, obviously. Mm-hmm. You've been around these parts uh, since before there were hospitals. <laughs> you also describe yourself as a passionate advocate for universal health care. One of your heroes, as a matter of fact, was a fella named Dr. Quentin Young, who I remember from my beloved hometown of Chicago. His mm-hmm. office was in Hyde Park. Mm-hmm. He was an advocate for a single-payer health care system as far back as the 1970s. And you know what? They called him a communist. Yep. If you want universal health care, if you want a single-payer system, does that make you a socialist? Does that make you a communist? Well, it depends on what that means. I think it certainly doesn't make me a communist. Um, I don't describe myself as a socialist, but I don't know really. People mean different things, you know. If you believe in universal public education, does that make you a socialist? Yeah. Uh, Do you believe that we should have universal public safety with firemen and police officers? And does that make you a socialist? So I want to extend that to healthcare, like so many, most of the other developed countries in the world have done. Does anybody die from not having health care these days? Well, there's actually a fair amount of published peer-reviewed data on this. So this is not just my opinion. But we think right now there are 28 to 30 million people in the United States who don't have any health insurance. And so the best published uh, data suggests that means there are 28 to 30,000 people a year dying, and you could assign their cause of death lack of health insurance because they are dying of preventable, treatable illnesses that because of barriers to getting health care, they didn't get the curative treatment they could have gotten, and they died. So yeah, 28 to 30,000 people a year are dying um, based on 28 to 30 million people without health insurance, and that's published data. Back in the days when Ralph Nader was just becoming a known quantity Mm -hmm. here in America, he uh, helped publicize the fact that tens of thousands of people were dying in auto crashes every year. Unsafe at any speed. Changes were made, seat belts, collapsible steering wheels, etc. People started acting, senators and congressmen. Why isn't it happening now, as long as we know that tens of thousands of people are dying for lack of health care? Mm-hmm. Follow the money. Just the other day on social media, Rob, you quoted Wendell Potter, former vice president of corporate communications at Cigna Health Insurance. He's a founder of Tarbell.com. That's a nonprofit news source dedicated to investigating how lobbyists for the wealthy influence energy and taxation and political and healthcare policies. Mm-hmm. In other words, the people with money make the, make the rules. Right. Here's your quote by him. Quote, health insurers have been successful at two things, making money 
and getting the American public to believe they're essential. Yes. They are a superfluous, parasitic middleman in the American healthcare system. Wow. They're getting the American public to believe they're essential. Are they or aren't they? Well, based on many, many other countries that are modern democracies like uh, the United States, they're not essential. The United States is the only developed country with a uh, dominated by a, for, uh, a for-profit health insurance uh, entities. Um, you know, a lot of countries have a national plan, a lot of countries, a single plan, which might be called single payer. A lot of countries have private health insurance like in Sweden and Germany, but those health insurance companies are not for profit and heavily regulated and really bear no resemblance to these giant corporate behemoths that dominate the American healthcare system and they, and make a ton of money. And they are fighting for their lives right now because there, it's as obvious to them as it is to me that what they do is really superfluous and that they are vulnerable, but of course they would never admit that. On the other hand, though, if we go to a single-payer system, suddenly are tens of thousands of people going to be out of jobs? It's a very good question. Uh, and, uh, you know, the estimates are 50 to 100,000 people um, could be out of work uh, when the transition's done. The One of the bills in front of Congress, uh, the one in the House, uh, sponsored by Representative Jayapal from Washington State, has in it a, a job retraining uh, program that would allow anyone whose job was displaced by this transition to have uh, several years of retraining and support, mm. um, because a lot of these people have some some skills. They know some. They know a lot of medical jargon, um, different sorts of things. I mean, they could be retrained. Sometimes, if I'm feeling a little snarky, I'm saying they could get meaningful work. <laughs> and the other thing that's kind of uh, ironic about it is if they lost their jobs because of this transition to a national program, they would have health insurance because everybody's covered. One of the big reasons why people are scared to death of losing their jobs is not from the fear of losing a weekly paycheck, but hey, how am I going to pay for that catastrophic exactly. illness that may, that come, may up? come up out of nowhere? Yeah. Right. And they always do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was so eager to get into talking about this, uh, I haven't given you your total props here. You, Rob Stone, are a founder and director of what used to be called Hoosiers for a Common Sense Health Plan, now called Medicare for All, Medicare for All Indiana. You uh, are the associate director for IU Health Bloomington Hospice. You're the medical director for IU Health Palliative Care. You're also on the board of advisors for, and this is a big organization too, Physicians for a National Health Program. Correct. In fact, Dr. Quentin Young was uh, a member of that game. He w he was the national coordinator for many years. Yeah. Until he died a few years ago. How did you meet him? Well, 
I first heard of him when I was involved with a group called the Medical Committee for Human Rights when I was in medical school in the 70s in Colorado. Uh And he was the director of the Medical Committee for Human Rights, which, amongst other things, um, took physicians and medical students to Mississippi in the Freedom Summer of 67 uh, and supported the civil rights movement and the marches there and bore witness and did medical care. And then later he became Martin Luther King Jr.'s phys- personal physician when right. King during the year or three that King lived in uh, Chicago. Yep. Uh, so I heard of him back w- when I was a member of MS- MCHR, Medical Committee for Human Rights in the 70s, but I didn't meet him until I went to my first um, PNHP, Physicians for a National Health Program, meeting in Philadelphia in 2005. Uh-huh. And so that's when I first met him. So then I got to know him, became a friend, I hosted him at my house. He hosted me at his house. He became a dear friend and mentor to me. And um, he had been kind of an idol of mine from my 20s, but that was one of the wonderful things about doing this work uh, for universal health care is some of the people I've gotten to meet, and he was the most dear and precious person I got to meet and really become friends with. Were you cognizant of the essential inequalities that the health care system presented when you were a kid in medical school? Probably only kind of dimly aware in medical school, and um, but um, as I finished medical school, it became more and more clear, and then I did three years of a family practice residency, yeah. and then my first job uh, after finishing my residency was that I worked in a uh, medically underserved area in the Barrio in the west side of Denver with a Hispanic population. So I worked there for three years, so I was in the midst of um, a uh, uh, you know, an organized effort to provide health care to uninsured and underinsured people in Denver. You studied undergrad at Dartmouth College, mm-hmm. and then you went to medical school at the University of Colorado. Ergo, uh, you're finding the job uh, in mm-hmm. Denver. Right. Yeah. And uh, you were uh, born and raised in Evansville, Indiana. Yeah. Not long ago... You were interviewed by Bloom Magazine, Mm -hmm. and here's a quote from that interview. The tendency in the medical system is to do and do and do. I sort of understand that. What can we do? What action Mm -hmm. can we take? You sort of push these days for, um, at certain times, less doing. Mm -hmm. You say, but many people wouldn't like to be kept alive on a ventilator. Mm Mm-hmm. And so that's a whole new thing uh, that you're involved with these days. Mm-hmm. That would be post. Physician's orders for scope of treatment. Mm-hmm. What's that all about? So sometimes people are aware, uh, many people are aware of this idea of a, of a living will, which is different from a financial document, but a living will is a statement, um, a document that expresses what you would want done if you were really sick and you were so sick at that moment that you couldn't make decisions for yourself. You were unconscious or something like that. You know, it's kind of a funny thing. In, in, the, uh, in the 1800s, people were uh, – there was a whole thing, Edgar Allan Poe and all, uh, the 
uh, about buried alive, and yeah. you know, people were so afraid that they would be buried while they were still alive. Right. And now we've swung 180 degrees from that. People are afraid that they're going to die, but they're going to be kept alive. Right. And so that is a this this thing that's come up through medical ethics through the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s um, that. People should not have to just be kept alive because we have the technology to keep them alive. And so people sometimes have strokes and auto accidents and heart attacks and things that leave them uh, significantly brain damaged. And so would they want to be kept alive just because we have the technology to keep them alive? So as a, that was kind of a long lead into, so you can sign documents that say if things really look terrible don't prolong my life let me go and then you're doing this when you're young and when you're healthy and that day is far off so the indiana living will is a document that you can get online through the uh, state department of health uh, which says if things are really dark and it looks like there's no chance that i'm going to have meaningful recovery then let me go and if you're 18 years and older you can sign that document if you want but then we realized, so that was the first step, and that okay. was 20 years ago, maybe that came law, maybe longer than that. Actually, probably longer than that. So then more recently, people have come uh, to realize that that document isn't really strong enough. Mm. And so for people who are uh, facing any sort of serious life-limiting or life-shortening illness, uh, sometimes the best thing for them in that situation is to make this uh, document called the POST, Physician's Orders for Scope of Treatment, where you designate things like, if my heart stops, let me go. Don't try to resuscitate me. Don't pump on my chest. Don't put a tube down my throat. And it further specifies some other things like artificial nutrition and hydration. Uh-huh. But the point of that document is, so right now, I'm 67 years old, and if if my heart stops during this interview, I would want the ambulance called. I would want CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation. I would want my chest pumped on. I would want to be ventilated, um, at least until we can see if my brain is still there. You still want to live. I still want to live. But if I had cancer that was advanced, not necessarily you know, heading right down this final pathway of terminal cancer, but if I had an advanced cancer or a, a chronic heart condition or different sorts of things, I could say, you know, at this point in time, the risks of resuscitating me go way up. Ah. My life expectancy because of underlying conditions, is is, is has dropped quite a bit. Um, you know, at this point, if my heart stops, just let me go. That's not a bad way to step away from this life. Are there medical condition standards that have to be crossed before you're determined to be a lost cause? I guess, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay. So this is looked at in a couple different ways. So to be in hospice, and I work with hospice, but hospice is different from 
palliative care, which is where I spend most of my time, uh, when my, most of my working time. In hospice, uh, one of the requirements for hospice is I don't want any more life-prolonging therapies. I just want to be comfortable. But the second criteria to be in hospice is that two physicians have to agree that I have a life expectancy of less than six months, understanding that we can't predict that precisely. So that's the criteria for hospice is a life expectancy of less than six months. Now, there's another way to look at that, which is to say, I am seeing this patient, Mr. Glab, and um, I don't think I could say in my best medical judgment that he has a life expectancy of less than six months, but perhaps he has enough medical problems that I could say I wouldn't be surprised if he died in the next year. I don't want him to die in the next year. I'd be sad if he died in the next year, but I wouldn't be surprised if he died in the next year because of X, Y, or Z. So that's an important, different way to look at it. And so if... So if it's it's called the surprise question. So if your physician would say, I wouldn't be surprised if you died in the next year, then that's kind of a criteria for, okay, so maybe at that point, and this is very subjective, um, that this person maybe really should think about, you know, uh, executing a, a post-physician's orders for scope of treatment, making themselves do not resuscitate if that's what they want. And then they can always change their mind, but if, they get to that point where they're not able to speak. We've got a document that helps then the rest of us, uh, family members, physicians, et cetera, help make decisions. Okay, well, his heart stopped. He made a post. Uh, he doesn't want to be resuscitated. We're just going to say a prayer and say goodbye. You know, if a person hits 75 years old, it's really not surprising when he or she drops For sure. dead. For sure. Is that part of the criteria? So there's no specific age criteria, uh-huh. uh, although some people have suggested 70 or 75 uh, uh-huh. as an age where you'd say, well, you know. That's course, when people die. That's when people die. Of course, I'm over 65, and over 65 is another place where, I mean, every year we get older over 50. Right. You know, the death rate rises relentlessly. Does it worry you that in a lot of ways this uh, not surprising criterion is based almost on a gut feeling? It doesn't bother me because I'm comfortable making big decisions for people based on limited data. I mean, that's my as an ER as an ER physician, I had to make big decisions based on limited data. So I got a lot of practice doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, But this whole process of doing life and death conversations, talking about dying, talking about what people want, is not an easy thing to do. I mean, not everybody is suited to doing it. And it just turns out it's something that I'm comfortable doing and I think I do a pretty good job with. You're an ambitious guy. It's rather a Quixotic effort uh, that you're trying, you want to redo the business model of healthcare. You want to redefine what doctors do to save lives. Previously, it's been save a life at all cost. Two big totems you're trying to knock down. Plus, I'm trying to grow some stuff in the garden in the orchard and... (laughs) 
you are a gardener, you have an orchard. Is there anything you can learn about human health from growing things? <laughs> well, I think it was Thomas Jefferson, and I think I can nail this quote fairly close, who said that when he was getting up in years, he said, I am an old man and I am still a young gardener. <laughs> so you could really talk about the practice of gardening because that's you know the practice of medicine. It, it, it's not when we talk about the practice of medicine. Sometimes people make jokes about, yeah, you're practicing on me, doc. Like it's <laughs> like I'm still learning. Well, I am still learning, but it's not because I'm a beginning learner. Right. It's uh, because I'm a ma hopefully mature learner because we're always learning. I have uh, right next to me uh, on the bedstead. Um, the Emperor of All Maladies. Oh, wonderful book. And the thing that you learn from it is we're just learning. We're just figuring this thing out, cancer. Mm -hmm. What's it all about and how do we treat it and what do we do? And I get the feeling, I've gone through it, that maybe 100 years from now we're going to look back at the things they did to me and say, oh, can you believe what they did? Because yeah. basically you're using a sledgehammer to kill a mosquito. Right. Yeah, like a lot of uh, traditional chemotherapy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But we have new technologies. We have nuclear physics behind us. Mm -hmm. Do you have to have a familiarity with particle physics at all? Um, not for what I do. Although if I were a radiation uh a physician who did radiation treatment for cancer, for instance, then you've got to know a lot of physics. Yes, of You course. know, I grew up as a science nerd. Yeah. And physics and math were big as well as uh, biology and chemistry. Yeah. But then I went down the biology route uh, to become a doctor. Speaking of the route you have taken, you come from a long line of lawyers. Mm-hmm. Your dad. Mm -hmm. Your brother, your grandfather. Both grandfathers. Both grandfathers mm -hmm. were lawyers. Why not you? Well, I was the third kid. <laughs> and um, so my oldest brother, yeah, so my oldest brother became, uh, went to law school. Uh -huh. And uh, actually, my second oldest brother married a lawyer. But so when I was young, I used to, when people, you know, old people who were probably 50 at the time or 40 at the time, but I saw them as old people, um, would come up and ask me, Rob, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I learned very quickly when I was seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old that if I said, oh, I'm going to be a lawyer, they would pat me on the head and smile and then leave me alone. <laughs> Because they wouldn't have to ask me, well, why? Because yeah, yeah. they all knew my family were lawyers. So I learned that very early on. But at some point towards the end of high school, so still at a fairly young age, um, probably partly because I spent one summer as a high school counselor, as a camp, summer camp counselor uh, at, a, at a camp for crippled children in southern Indiana, that I got this idea that I would go – uh, to medical school, and I told my father um, in the spring of 1970, as, uh, as kind of wrapping up high school and getting ready to, to leave for Dartmouth for college, and I told my father that I uh, wanted to go to medical school, and he said, oh, that is wonderful. And he told me a story then that he had never told me before, that he when he had gone to Harvard uh, uh -huh. as an, an extra college, and as an undergraduate at Harvard, he had been taking 
some pre-med classes. And um, one summer he came home and told his father, my grandfather, who was a, one of the lawyers in the family, that um, he wanted to be a doctor. And my grandfather, his father, told him, well, that's fine, but uh, I want you to be a lawyer. And if you want me to keep paying your tuition, you've got to be a lawyer. No kidding. And so he swallowed hard and uh, made a decision, okay, I, I guess I'm in the law school path. Uh, so he was so thrilled that I wanted to be a doctor. So he was really happy. Hey, that's interesting. You bring up pre-med. Uh, I have read at various times that there used to be a time when both the law and the medical schools really didn't want people who were interested in either law or medicine from the day they were born to come into their schools. They wanted a wide variety of people because they thought a wide variety yes. of interests Right. Made you a better either lawyer or doctor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's been around and was definitely uh, uh, a thing when I was applying to medical school. Really? And so my path was um, biology was a good major for me and it prepared me for the tests I needed to take yeah. to get into medical school. But I took everything else uh, in terms of humanities uh, and uh, literature, et cetera, that I could uh, because I certainly loved all that stuff too. So I assume you still have a great variety of interests, uh, not mm -hmm. only gardening and right. orcharding and so forth. Right. What book did you recently read? Well, right now I'm reading The Overstory. Yeah. Blitzer Prize about Powers. trees. and Yeah, uh, so I'm loving that. If I can go back to you being a gardener and you talk about gardening is a, it's a slow type of thing. But when you were a doctor in the emergency room, you were sort of turned on by the by the pace mm -hmm. of the emergency room. Mm -hmm. You were quoted in Bloom magazine a few years ago as saying you almost have to have AD, ADD to be a, an emergency room doctor because you're always jumping from thing to thing. Right. You're always multitasking. You go see somebody and you order blood tests and x-rays and scans. And so then that there may be a window of 30 to 90 minutes where then, well, you've got to, so then you pick up another chart, go see another patient, uh, put that one down yeah. and, and on and on. And then, then the tests come back, so you've got to circle back. So it, it's a major multitasking. When you're finished with your shift as an emergency room doctor, are you on a crazy high and you have to chill out? A lot of my time in the ER was spent working the evening shifts. Uh -huh. uh, so when trouble happens. Yeah, because uh -huh. the staffing is a little heavier in the evening because it's the busiest time in the yeah. ER. And so, therefore, the people working there are going to work a lot of evenings. And so if, when I'd get off work at 11 or midnight, I would be, I'd come home, I'd be exhausted and... My mind would just be going a million miles an hour. So I had to chill for an hour or two. Otherwise, if I went to bed too quickly, I'd, I just wouldn't fall asleep. I wonder if some doctors drink. I imagine. Is that the kind of thing where in the journals they write stories about that kind of problem? Oh, yeah, yeah. And Although you do learn that um, alcohol in the evening is, is not good for sleep. It may help you get to sleep, but you end up not sleeping as well. So I avoided alcohol those evenings yeah. when I'd get home late. 
Rob Stone, a physician of long standing here in Bloomington. Boy, if you don't know Rob Stone, uh, I don't know where you've been. <laughs> he uh, gets a lot of attention by advocating passionately for universal health care. Dr. Stone, Rob, thanks so much for being on Big Talk. Well, uh, it's been my pleasure. 